open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. As we continue to go through our study of the book of Acts, we're not going through chapter by chapter, or whole chapters anyway, we'll be looking at it more thematic. What is the book of Acts trying to tell us? What was it trying to tell the first century Christians? What was Luke trying to tell Theophilus, the friend of God? We're going to start in Acts chapter 2. And read the verse 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound, like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Capatitia, Pontus, Asia, Pergia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We all hear them in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, God, the day you visited this earth, not just in your Son, but in your Spirit, by your Spirit, God, this world was never the same again. As the Spirit gives testimony to our hearts of the mighty works of God, that Jesus Christ is truly alive. We thank you, O God, that 2,000 years later, the church is up, alive, active, and it is thriving, Father God. And the church, to some extent, will always look like to the world a bunch of drunkards running around speaking about Jesus. There'll always be people that mock us, but there'll always be people that will hear the genuine testimony of God himself. So, Lord, we actually breathe upon the text. Encourage our hearts with this teaching today, Father God. Open up our minds to understand the scriptures, Father God, and reveal to us the mighty works of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, many great institutions have started in very humble means. IBM and others started some in garages, backyards, basements, to become great institutions today. Here we see the Christian church starting in a small room, an upper room, 120 people gathered together, 
uh, waiting on a promise of the Holy Spirit. They, they have a sense, uh, a taste of what this could all be, but they really don't know. It's, they're not experiencing the dudamas, the power of the Holy Spirit coming and consuming all people. They have an Old Testament understanding of it. Jesus spoke about it. Jesus, before he ascended, uh, he breathed into them the Holy Spirit, and it was able. they were able to understand the Scriptures. Jesus Christ opened up their minds to understand the Scriptures. And now here we are, the day of Pentecost has finally come. The promise is going to be fulfilled. They're all in a room, they're all praying, and something's going to happen. This is the day of fulfillment. This is what Christ has been speaking about since John chapters 13 to 17. For the last 50 days, right the the night before his betrayal, he started speaking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. For those 50 days he gave, the 40 days he gave those cameo appearances of himself, the resurrected, glorified Christ. He spoke about the coming of the kingdom and he spoke about the Holy Spirit. And he said, wait in Jerusalem until you are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. There are certain characteristics we need to know that Jesus taught about even before we go into this text. Because they were taught something about the Holy Spirit. They were taught going all the way back into the upper room before his betrayal, before his crucifixion, about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It was a teaching, it was there, but it wasn't up and active and alive yet. And that's how it is for many young Christians. In John 14, 16, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever. Talking about the Holy Spirit, he has an encouraging, strengthening ministry. He also says, even the Spirit of truth, He's an enlightening ministry so that we can understand God's word and God's will. And you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. This ministry is an eternal, internal ministry. It's not an external. Jesus was external. He did all his teaching and miracles externally. But now it's going to be internal ministry of the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say in 1426, But the help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is the prophetic ministry of uttering the very teachings of Christ. Verbatim, word for word, remembering everything that Jesus has said. He goes on to say in chapter 15, 26, But when the Helper comes, that's the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. We see that the Holy Spirit's one obsession and one ministry is to glorify Christ in all things. In 16, 8, Jesus says, and when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is the Holy Spirit's judicial ministry on the conscience of people. Some people will hear and re... Oh, receive, that was good. I was thinking reject. As the people that were mocking, you filled with new wine. That's his judicial ministry. Some people will hear and reject... Others will hear, repent, and receive.
1613, Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will speak on, not, not speak on His own authority, but will, whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you these things that are about to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. This is a generalization of the Spirit's ministry with the added emphasis of being the only revealer of Christ. Period. He's the true vicar of the church. No earthly man is a vicar of the church. Only the Holy Spirit is the true vicar of the church. He reveals Christ. Period. He reveals Christ's humanity and his deity. He reveals his cross work to our hearts. That our sins are genuinely forgiven and we don't have to work for it. We accept it as a free gift. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He reveals the will of God, the will of Christ. He reveals that he's coming again. He reveals who we are in Christ now. He reveals that we're more than conquerors. He gives us the cry of Abba Father, the spirit of sonship. This is the Holy Spirit's job. And though the world can't see him, we can because he abides in us. And of course, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And it's this last one that I just mentioned and read in Acts 1.8 is the the characteristic of our text tonight. That's, that's what's being highlighted here. The ministry of the Holy Spirit to come and bring power into powerless vessels. Uh, that's you and me. That's the apostles. That's his job. To transform us from the inside, being cowardly, to be external, magnificent professors of Jesus Christ in the face of all hostility and unbelief to go toe-to-toe with the world and say, He has risen, just like He said. He brings us to our text tonight. Verse 1, He says, When the day of Pentecost has arrived... They were all together in one place. And it's significant that we open up with uh, this chapter and the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And we don't want to miss the correlation. We don't want to miss how they go hand in hand. And what what God is trying to teach us over here. That the day of Pentecost was, it was a festival of ingathering. The ingathering of the harvest, of the wheat. It was one of three major festivals that were all devout Jews would come to Jerusalem and recognize and they would come from all over the known world. It was a pilgrimage. One of three. A pilgrimage to come to Jerusalem. All the Jews from all over the known world would come and converge on Jerusalem 50 days after the Passover. And they would come with their thanksgiving offering. They would come with their hearts filled with gratitude. They were coming to say, God, thank you for another year of harvest. We want to thank you. And what they did, they would wait outside. And and the day before, they would all converge. The gates would be open to Jerusalem. And and the throngs would start coming in and pouring into Jerusalem to celebrate the ingathering. Pentecost. And then they would wait. And they would wait all day. And then at midnight, the doors of the temple were flung open. And they would rush in with their 
free will offerings telling Jehovah thank you, thank you to songs, to, to singing of the psalms and, and to the trumpet blast and to prayers and to praises and, and, and it would come and it would all start coming in and all night long and all night long they would come in thanking God and now it's the morning, it's the third hour There's another mighty sound coming. And it wasn't a sound from the temple. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. As the Jewish trumpet began the ingathering of wheat on the festival of Pentecost, now began the literal fulfillment of what the festival always stood for. The ingathering of God's people, the true wheat, the souls of men. And with a mighty rushing sound of wind, the Holy Spirit filled that room, not the temple, but He filled the room and He filled people. And then on that day they became the temple of the living God. Every type and shadow was being fulfilled. And what that festival stood for once a year, for millennium, from the time of Moses, thanks to God, would now be celebrated every day, 24 hours a day, until Christ comes back to gather us, His true wheat, into His bond. That's the ingathering. That was all a type and a shadow of what Jesus was going to do. What the Holy Spirit was going to do. Wind, fire, stood for the presence and the power of God. The presence and the power of God was in the Old Testament. But it was in a temple. The presence. And the power was found in certain individuals like a priest and kings and, and prophets and certain other judges God would raise up to bring some type of salvation to the nation of Israel. Some kind of prophetic word to bring them back from their, their sinful ways and to bring them back into covenant fidelity with God. And they were anointed with the Holy Spirit for a specific task. But now all the people would be filled with the presence and the power of God, don't miss what's going on. Don't ever take for granted that you love Christ. Don't ever take for granted you can feel the presence of the Spirit. Never take for granted that you know that you know that you know your sins are forgiven. Never take for granted that you know when you die you're going to be in heaven. And don't ever take it for granted. That is the Holy Spirit revealing these truths to us. Period. And now this presence and power now resting on everyone, man, woman, child, Jew, and yes, Gentile. It was not just for certain individuals within a nation to carry out a specific task for God, but it was for all and for everybody and forever God was bringing in his wheat. This is the true ingathering. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. 
We have to realize that for the first time in human history, in the first time in redemptive history, people representing all the nations are going to hear and respond to the saving message of God. First time ever. In their native language, the promise to Abraham is being fulfilled. It's being fulfilled. Promise and fulfillment. This is the fulfillment. All the nations of the world shall be blessed through him. It's happening right here. It's happening right now. It never happened in the Old Testament. The the Jewish nation was blessed. But now people were coming from every nation. Yes, they were devout Jews. But they represented the nations they came from. The prophet spoke about a time where the law would go out of Zion to the whole world. They would all come. They would all come to Zion to hear the perfect law of God. There is some dispensationalists in the Christian church that think that's going to be uh, physically uh, 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 fulfilled in the, in the millennium. We hold a different view here. We think that was being fulfilled right now as I speak in this text. The text is telling us it's happening right now. The promise of the prophets, the promise to Abraham is being right. Do not think it's going to be something more sensational than that. It's not. It's the Holy Spirit coming and filling the hearts of his people. Of every tribe, nation, tongue, under heaven and earth. It's happening right here in an act of divine engineering of God that staggers the mind. He has brought all the nations of the world to one location at one time. He doesn't say, well, while they're all here, I'll take advantage of it. No, no, no. When he told Abraham 2,000 years earlier, he knew he was going to do this. That's why he can tell Abraham. As Paul teaches us in Galatians chapter 3, that the gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand. That in you, Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. History happens because God willed it to happen. He doesn't use history and say, oh, look, this is what I'll do. No, it's done because he's willed it. He commands what he wills. As Luther said, and he wills what he commands. Don't get in the way of God. In one act of divine engineering, their minds are overwhelmed. It goes on to say, in this sound, the multitude came together at the sound. They're all leaving the temple. Don't miss it. They were in the temple, the trumpet blast by the priests were going up in the temple. They don't want to hear that sound no more. They're going to the other sound, the real trumpet, the voice of God. And the multitude comes together and they were bewildered. Each one was hearing them speak in their own native tongue. Nineteen nations represented. Nineteen. And they're amazed, they're astonished. Saying, are not all these speaking Galileans? Understand something. For centuries, every Sabbath, every festival, every new moon, worship was done in the strictest Hebrew dialect. It was never spoken in Greek, ever. It was spoken in the Hebrew. Though Jews spoke Greek, when you went into the temple, they spoke Hebrew. 
Didn't speak anything else. Reminds me of growing up as a kid, going to the Latin Mass. What was that all about? What was that all about? How was that? How do I know how it was? I don't know what they were speaking. Similar, if you're a little of age, you remember that. It wasn't accessible. The praise of the temple wasn't accessible to the common person. They could bit, pick up on bits and pieces. But many of them would have trouble. And for the first time, they're hearing in their own language the mighty works of God. They're overwhelmed. And, and not just overwhelmed, but it's not the educated priest. It's common men from Galilee. You might not think much about that. But it's an act of grace. That was a ghetto language. Galilee was a ghetto. It was a rough dialect. That's why the slave girl could tell Peter, aren't you a Galilee? You speak like a Galilee. Your dialect is... You sound like you're from Brooklyn. That's what you sound like. Well, where, where are you from, man? Galileans. They spoke with a ghetto tongue. It was rough on the ears. They were unlearned. They were untrained men. But they were hearing them speak of the mighty works of Jehovah God. They were mesmerized. For the first time in their life, religion became real. They came into a service instead of just the dry orthodoxy, instead of just the dry ritual and ceremony. Their ears and their hearts are finally hearing men and women in love with God. In love with God. Praising God. Not the high and stuffy religious leaders in the temple. Uneducated and unlearned people were schooling the devout Jew from every nation. What a work of God's grace. They were comedies. They were nobodies. And they were singing from the heart with cheer and adoration and exaltation of what God has done from the time that Cain killed Abel and they were given a biblical history lesson of all the mighty works of God, the deliverance through Joshua, the kings of of Israel and what the prophets had done and then it finally culminated and when they said, but the mightiest of all works in their own native tongue was the raising of Jesus Christ from the grave. He's alive. That's what they were saying. He's alive. Everything else was a type and a shadow of the resurrection of the Christ. Every mighty work of deliverance and salvation that God has ever done throughout redemptive history, throughout the whole Old Testament, only points to this one historical fact. The grave is empty and he's alive. And that's what they were shouting. They were all come out, 120 different languages. They were running left, they were running right. Man, woman, child were running out. He's alive, he's alive. Unashamed. Yeshua is alive. Yeshua 
Yamashiach is alive. He's alive. And they're overwhelmed. These Galileans. Wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you and gives you power. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He takes that which is common and makes it uncommon. He takes that which is earthly and he makes it spiritual. He takes that which is empty and he gives it, he fills it. He takes that which is not usable and he gives him a tongue to proclaim the mighty works of God. And it leads right into our application. They were all perplexed. They were all amazed in verse 12. They were saying to one another, what does this mean? They're overwhelmed. They're astonished. They can't believe their eyes. They can't believe their ears. They can't put the two together. If the prophet, if the, if the priest in the temple were proclaiming the mighty works of God, they could have had some kind of reference. But who are these Galileans? How dare they speak of the mighty works of God? Do you know the common Jew wasn't allowed to talk about the mighty works of God? It was the priest and the high priest's job. But others were saying, mockingly, they're filled with new wine. There are two groups of people represented here. Group A are those who hear God's testimony and don't care where it's coming from, even from seemingly drunk people, and they genuinely inquire because they got ears to hear. Then the other group B are those who ignorantly remark God's work anytime and all the time, attributing it to some earthly manifestation. They're drunk. That's all they are. They're just drunk. They're crazy. That's what they were saying. Drunkards. Galilean drunkards. Don't listen to them. And we know that wherever clear biblical preaching, teaching, and witnesses have taken place, to one degree or another, these two groups and their attitudes will be represented. No matter where we are, there will always be a group to hear something of God in the message and inquire. And there will always be the group that mocks. Peter addresses both these groups in the next verses of this chapter, and we're going to speak about that next week. But when it comes to application of the text, and I want to move forward on that as I tried to explain the text in its context the best I could. Filled with the Spirit. Do you know that one term, one concept has separated more Christians? Filled with the Spirit. There are those in Pentecostal circles that believe that unless you're speaking in tongues, in unknown languages, and you're not prophesying, that you're not filled with the Spirit. Now, if I only read Acts chapter 2 and I didn't understand it in its historical context and I didn't understand it doctrinally or theologically which I did for 17 years I would say you know, that there's a good case because they say the Bible says so now it's not about speaking in tongues and stuff it's just making a point what does this 
these 13 verses and the others that follow, we'll get into as the weeks go on, teach us about being filled with the Spirit. That's the most important thing. I can tell you what all the different sides say uh, in, in a contemporary setting. But what is the text teaching us about being filled with the Spirit? Can we look into our own life and, and, and discern, am I filled with the Spirit? Am I filled with the power of God? Was I at one time filled with the power of God, but I'm not so much anymore? Uh, or, or am I still filled with the Spirit? How do we know? How do we identify with the supernatural experience? When I was saved, I didn't have a tongue, at least I don't think so, over my head. A tongue of fire. I didn't hear no mighty rushing wind. No one else heard the mighty rushing wind. No one saw... uh, uh, Didn't see anything. Nothing supernatural. Did anybody here see anything supernatural honestly? See, you don't go by if someone's filled with the Spirit or a congregation is filled with the Spirit by an outward manifestation. You look at the deep convictions in their heart. That's how you tell. That's how you tell. It is the same today. Does the Holy Spirit do mighty works like this? All believers, number one, all believers receive the fullness of the Spirit. All believers do. And all are engaged in witnessing for their Lord. It's not about the, it's not about the prophet, the priest, the, the priest or the king. Everybody, man, woman, and child who is saved, receive the fullness of the Spirit, and they can go out and witness for the Lord. One of the girls that belongs to the church, but she's kind of busy, she's not here all the time, loves the Lord. Uh, she has a, a five-year-old daughter who loves Jesus. And this child is going to a very secular, humanistic school. And all the daughter says is, I want to talk about Jesus. They, they complain to the mother because all the daughter does is speak to the children about, about Jesus. They had to complain. The father complained. If the husband wasn't on the board, they probably would throw them out. But they contribute a lot of money. And they allowed him to stay. But they had to speak to the parent because your daughter is speaking about Jesus. That's what God can do. That's what God can do. Though speaking in other languages is what's going on here. Supernaturally. They were speaking supernaturally in other languages for the sake of another's advantage to come to Christ. Had nothing to do with them. It wasn't even about them. They were a, a, a vessel between God and the people that don't know Christ yet. That was the whole supernatural event. It wasn't that we can establish an ongoing uh, church that moves in this kind of supernatural work. It's not. It was so God can meet. You ready? 
It was so that God gave these languages so he can meet the nations that he promised to his friend Abraham were going to be there one day and all the nations of the world will be blessed, Abraham, because one day I'm going to pour out my spirit on 120 people. They're going to pour out of the upper room. They're not going to be looking to the temple. They're going to be looking to the Galileans who look like drunks, but they're going to be proclaiming the mighty works of God and they will speak in other tongues and they will bring people from every other nation to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. But here's the good news. God's mighty work of raising Christ right now is proclaimed in the whole world in just about every known language. Praise the Lord. I don't have to supernaturally speak in other languages. God has raised up people to speak in their own languages, to their own people. And the gospel has advanced. This was also God's grace to meet all the nations at one time in a miraculous way as a sign and a wonder. Not a novelty for us to chase. Not a supernatural mystery to try to hold on to. Christians need to be led in witnessing as they are led into living holy lives. The Spirit does both. Being filled with the Spirit here has to do primarily and specifically with one thing. Speaking about Christ to others. It tears down the fear of man. It elevates us, even if we look like we're drunken, stupid people from Galilee. We're going to speak about Christ no matter what. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit in this text. It has nothing to do with any internal thing, so to speak, and I'll explain that. It has to do with an objective witnessing for Christ, that the Holy Spirit loosens us up, loosens our tongue with these deep convictions, not an experience, deep convictions of all the mighty works of God, so that when we proclaim the Apostles' Creed, it is not something religious we do that we'd be willing to die for that creed because we're filled with the Spirit of God. How's our witness? Is witnessing like going to the dentist to some Christians? What happened? What happened with the fullness of the Spirit? What made us dry up? Can you remember a time in your Christian life to speak of how Christ was... It was as easy as saying, let me show you a picture of my family. I love my family. Here's, here's my wife and here's my kids. I, I love them. Can you show me? A, yeah, here's a picture of my family. That's how it is when you love Christ. Let me talk to you about Christ. He's my, I love the Lord. No matter how uncomfortable it is, we speak about Christ. We share Christ. When it comes to application of the subjective and the objective, let me explain it. It's important to understand being filled with the Spirit. The knowledge of doctrine and the experience of doctrine are two different things. On this day, they had both the knowledge of Christ, His deity, His resurrection, His ascension into heaven. He's God's Christ and Lord now. He's exalted at the right hand of the Father. Now they experience it for themselves. What they heard Jesus talk about in the upper room 
Now they're, they're experiencing it. And now the experience turns to deep conviction, what leads to witnessing. This is not about personal inner experience, but spiritual experience with deep conviction. That we live it and we speak it. I make no apologies for what the text says. This has everything to do with talking to others about Jesus Christ. Period. These are the convictions that drove the whole book of Acts. It became part of the believer's existence. It became the part of the early church. They were in awe of the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ. You couldn't keep them down. Deep, deep convictions. For us today, we're not going to have this. I, I, I didn't walk with Jesus for three years, watch him crucified, watch him resurrected, watch him hang around for 40 days and speak to me. I, I didn't need a supernatural encounter. I'm not a first century Jew. I'm a 21st century Brooklynite. And what I need to hear is the message in my own native tongue by people that have deep conviction, that love the Lord. I receive the message. I'm saved. I grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so does my witness. So does my witness. It grows. I ask you, is your witness growing or is it going? Next application is spirit-led leadership. Spirit-led, spirit-filled ministry. Not anybody can do the work of God. Not anybody can speak to other people on behalf of God in the name of Christ. Only someone who's filled with the Spirit can do it effectively. It's hard work. And it takes everything we have. If we move out in the flesh, the flesh profits nothing. Today's application is a believer has to know they're being led by the Holy Spirit. Because not to be led by the Holy Spirit is to only be led by the flesh. And it profits nothing. And how do we know that? Because we know we're walking in the Spirit and being led by the Spirit when we have deep, passionate, and strong conviction of the person of Jesus Christ and the church. It has to be deep. It has to be real. It has to be alive. If it's not alive to me, why should I expect it to be alive to you? It's the hallmark and characteristic of true spirit-filled ministry. Deep, passionate conviction on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That is being spirit-filled. And it goes for both lay people and those who are called into, the, into service, whether it's preaching or teaching, evangelism. Both can be filled with the Spirit. Both can be used mightily by God, working in harmony. We're going to see this over the next couple of chapters. We're going to see both laity and we're going to see those who are called as apostles working together in a spirit of harmony, in unity, in love, towards the common goal of witnessing Christ the ingathering of souls and ministering to their needs. When it came to uh, in chapter 6, there was a, a group of Jews, there were Hellenistic Jews, and they came too. They, they came and heard the mighty works of God. They were part of the 3,000 that came into the church, but 
But we needed other people to minister to them. And they went and they said, get seven men who are filled with the Holy Spirit. You got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because they were bickering and fighting. Could you imagine trying to minister to people who are always bickering and fighting and not being filled with the Spirit? You have to be led with the Spirit. You have to have other people's best intentions in our hearts so I can overcome all the nonsense, so I can minister in a spirit of, of, of love and compassion and empathy and sympathy. And here's one other thing. Spirit-filled ministry will always bear fruit for God. Always. You also suffer at the same time. It goes hand in hand. We'll see that in the book of Acts. They all bore fruit for God, but they were all persecuted by those who are still mocking even today. Father, we thank you. We bless you, Lord God. Thank you for allowing us today, 2,000 years later, to enter into the mighty work of God that your son truly is the culminating work of all your mighty works. If you took all the mighty works, Father, of the Old Testament and put them together, they couldn't stand next to the resurrection of Jesus Christ when you raised him from the dead and he ascended into heaven and sat down next to you right now as the God-man interceding for us with his wounds in his hands and his wounds in his feet looking at us with mercy and empathy showing you just how much he loved us and we're in Christ now we're hidden in Christ with God right now Father and that you love us so deeply and so genuinely so radically God but oh Father we desire to be again used mightily by the Holy Spirit Father God and witnessing Forgive our coldness. Forgive our indifference, Father God. Forgive us for taking for granted that the Spirit of God dwells in us. Forgive us that that we're called, or taking for granted that we're called to be temples of the Holy Spirit, Father God. And we've got lukewarm, Father. We've lost our first love. We lost zeal and passion, Father God, in our living for you and our witness for you, God. We're good religious people, Father God, but we lost that first love and passion of telling others about Christ. God, would you bless us with your Holy Spirit again, in Jesus' name.